0: Welcome to episode one hundred and four of the Star Trek Academy podcast. Today, at season two premiere of Strange New Worlds, entitled "The Broken Circle,"
1: I'm the Academy Media Professor Michael Merrick, and I'm the Academy Philosophy Professor Rodney Cup. And you can find us on Mastodon, Twitter, and Facebook, all with the same username at Trek underscore Academy, and our Tumblr address is Trek academy without the underscore and of course you can listen directly on our website and so we're back after a eight-week hiatus seems like it's been quite a while school's out our families have been traveling and uh now though we're ready to focus on some strange new worlds this new season
0: And rodney i'm happy to say that during this hiatus Downloads and listens to our podcast episodes have continued really at a at a brisk pace. They've grown by almost 9% just during oh, wow. this eight-week hiatus, and that's very cool.
1: That's great. I love it when people listen to us. Okay. Yeah,
0: yeah. One bit of housekeeping, earlier this year, Spotify purchased Anchor.fm, which has been our podcasting platform. And when they did that, our website URL, which we've been in the habit of giving each episode, got a lot longer. For the record, it is now Hmm. podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Star Trek Academy.
1: Uh, uh,
0: uh. (laughs) Now, the old anchor.fm URL that we have given in past podcasts still works. It forwards. But I think to make it easier from now on, we'll just invite people to Google Star Trek Academy podcast, and you'll find us with our distinctive red Vulcan hand salute logo. And then, of course, uh, we hope people will subscribe via podcasting apps so they get uh, new episodes just automatically.
1: Well, with those preliminaries out of the way, we're going to start, as we always do, with a brief summary of the episode we're focused on so that people who are listening down the road can have their memories refreshed, and so with that summary of The Broken Circle, including spoilers, by the way, just so that you know, here's Dr. Michael Merrick.
0: And thank you. So Captain Pike is not really much involved in this episode. He's away for a few days seeking help from an unidentified person or Una's upcoming court martial. So Spock is left in command of Enterprise in space dock. And the main story of the episode is that Enterprise receives a message from La'an, who is on a planet near Klingon space where she's found Oriana's parents. The message warns of danger, but Admiral April refuses to give Spock permission to go find out what's up. Therefore, Spock steals Enterprise and goes anyway with support from the other regular cast. Now, does that sound familiar?
1: Hmm, hmm, hmm.
0: The short version of the episode is that they find a Klingon faction that plans to reignite the Klingon Federation war for profit by sending out a fake Starfleet ship that they've kind of cobbled together from spare parts. After a lot of twists and turns, Enterprise destroys the imposter ship and Spock reaches an accord with the Klingons that includes consuming large quantities of blood wine. Admiral April lets Spock off with a warning But we also see that there appears to be an impending war, a Gorn attack ship is on its way toward Federation space. That's a really brief look at the episode to refresh your memory if you're listening to this podcast down the road a bit.
1: So our main mission is to talk about the philosophy and the themes and the morals of this episode as we see them. But first, we want to take a look at the production of the episode. The design continuity with past star trek character development and the like
0: and rodney this season certainly starts off with a bang with this episode this is an action-packed episode it also manages to squeeze in some character development and some new at least planting the seeds of some new backstory and also there is uh, some humor there are some continuity points that i want to uh, note here as we get started in the original series the episode galileo seven Kirk makes Mm -hmm. a point of noting that that mission is Spock's first command. And on the other hand, we pretty much have to say that the Broken Circle is uh, an actual command for Spock. Maybe it doesn't count because he's violating orders and he's only supposed to be in command while he's in space dock. But there's a little continuity glitch with the original series. Yeah. At the end of the episode, April essentially excuses spock from stealing the enterprise because there was a really positive outcome but he says it better not happen again Mm -hmm. and of course we know it will happen again at least once when spock steals uh the ship to take pike to talos 4 after that radiation accident we know is in pike's future
1: yeah and for that reason you know if you're familiar with the original series spock's decision here doesn't seem implausible really i mean we know That his loyalty to officers with whom he serves, in rare cases, can override his loyalty to Starfleet, as it did in in that episode, the two-parter of the menagerie.
0: Yeah. Now, last season in the penultimate episode, that means next to last, our heroes were trapped on a crashed ship on an ice planet, and the ship was infested with baby Gorn. Remember that? Yeah. Spock intentionally lost his temper in order to decoy the very aggressive Gorn, And this week we learned he's having trouble reining that emotion back in, in effect, putting the cognitive blocks
1: back in place that Vulcans use. And one of the things I personally loved about this episode is that we find out why Spock plays the Vulcan lute in the original series, and it makes perfect sense, right? Mbenga gives one to Spock so that he can use it to channel his emotions. Mm -hmm. Now, Spock tells
0: Mbenga that He's concerned that his emotions may affect his judgment while in command of Enterprise. I think that it turns out that those recent emotions do affect Spock's judgment. He decides to hijack Enterprise out of his sense of loyalty to his crewmates. And no matter how much we respect that sense of loyalty, it's still fundamentally an emotional reaction, even though his surface behavior shows his typical restraint.
1: Yeah, no, he's definitely emotional in this episode. But this is interesting, Michael. I think my take on this is a little different. I agree he's being unusually emotional, but his emotions, I thought, were more a product of his sense of loyalty than the cause of them. I mean, I like to think that he's acting from a, a moral principle here.
0: No, I think he is. I see his emotions as being caused by that giving up of emotional control to fight the gore in last season. And you might say... Maybe this fact that he is being influenced by emotions may make him more susceptible, not to the question of loyalty, but specifically to the decision to hijack a starship. So that you might say it's how he implements his loyalty that's a result of these recent emotions. If all his emotions were fully in place, would he have taken the same approach? Or would he mm, have found right. some other way to convince the admiralty or something like that? Plus, when they're about to blow up the fake Starfleet ship, Spock repeatedly delays firing. And we find out later, it's a really quick comment, and it might have been easy for people to miss, but we find out that Spock is waiting for a signal from Chapel and Mbenga. And the implication is mainly Chapel he was worried about saving because of whatever it is between them.
1: Yeah, I agree with you completely here. It it wasn't just about his concern that a valued crew member might have been lost. That's something a TOS era Spock might have said. I, I think they're obviously in love with each other,
0: aren't they? I'm not sure if they know what they are. Now, remember that one of these times Roger Corby is going to come along. Chapel told us last season that she wasn't into serious relationships. I suspect that she senses that any relationship with Spock would be a difficult road. I'm not sure really no matter how they feel, how willing she is or how willing Spock is to explore that relationship. There are a couple of new character stories that it released hinted at this week, back to Mbenga and Chapel, They were apparently assigned together during the Klingon War and apparently not on Enterprise, Mm -hmm. because remember, Enterprise
1: was way off on the frontier
0: and didn't get engaged
1: in combat at all. Right, Pike refers to that in his voiceover at the beginning, and we can also add to that list Ortega's. She apparently fought in the war because she knows how to hide from these D7 cruisers.
0: Really, anyone that we didn't see in Discovery Season Two on The Enterprise or on The Enterprise Bridge particularly probably fought in the war. And I think other than Pike and number one and Spock, the entire bridge crew is different now mm-hmm. than it was in that period immediately after the Klingon War. So Mbenga and Chapel clearly have a history together. And a history with those green injections that they take to make them super soldiers for fighting the klingons i didn't mention that in the summary but there was an extended hand-to-hand combat scene and uh, they were both doing really good they also talk about other bad situations they've gotten out of together suggesting they may have been more than just a medical team in the war but it's not clear and remember, last season when Mbenga came aboard, after the refit, he and Pike knew each other pretty well, as if they had served together, at least at some time and place previously. Did you notice, Rodney, that Mbenga and Chapel kind of play bad cop, nice
1: cop with the Klingon that they were questioning? You know, that's interesting. I, I didn't think that was an act, Michael. I thought it was Mbenga's wartime trauma that was causing him to lose control and brutalize that Klingon that they were interrogating. That was my take.
0: I don't know. Earlier, he said that he was in control of himself, but it may have been some of both. At least it worked out as kind of the cliched bad cop, good cop that we so often see in fiction intended or not. And I want to talk a bit about the new chief engineer, Pellia, who is a lanthanite, uh, an unusually long-lived being whose people lived in hiding on Earth until revealed in the 22nd century now we know almost nothing else about her people she's apparently not only hundreds but likely thousands of years old there are several species in star trek that have been established as living longer than humans vulcans in particular but also like trill symbionts and of course there is acarin also known as flint from the original series episode requiem for methuselah he was human born in mesopotamia around the year 3800 bc and in that story the implication was that he was a one off not part of some like long-lived human tribe or or species Uh, according to mccoy flint died as a result of leaving earth with all its complex fields and and other double talk so is Pelia one of flint's kind if so she apparently has some kind of way to stay alive when off of planet Earth. I was interested that when Pelia asks Spock the worst thing about living almost forever, he immediately responds saying, seeing loved ones die. And you know, this is kind of a cliche in science fiction. It was a major point of the first Highlander movie. I think the first science fiction story I ever read about a human who is unusually long-lived featured a character named Lazarus Long, who appeared in multiple books by Robert A. Heinlein. The idea of the poignancy of seeing loved ones die while you continue to live is is a major part of one section of Heinlein's book, Time Enough for Love. We, from time to time, find stories of people that are usually long-lived, living amidst the rest of society. But I I thought in this episode, it was funny, but also I think insightful that Pelia says that all humans face seeing loved ones die. So that is not something unique to her or her kind. And that the worst thing for her is boredom. It was a Mm -hmm. funny moment, but I think, you know, if you've lived for a few thousand years, you would have done everything. It would be really hard finding new experiences.
1: Let's just say this. It was one funny moment, great moment among quite a few great moments with our new chief engineer. She's turning out to be quite quite a character,
0: yeah, quite a character indeed that'll be fun to see explored. One note about her, the actor Carol Kane invented this accent for Pelia. That's not Carol Kane's normal speaking voice. She has said, I wanted her to sound like you don't know where exactly she comes from. I do wonder, though, after hundreds or thousands of years, would she still have the accent she was born with? For example, if she was in San Francisco teaching at Starfleet Academy for a few decades or longer, wouldn't her accent tend to migrate to local pronunciation?
1: I've had similar questions about, say, Chekhov's accent or Scotty's accent, you know, and I just don't think too hard about them.
0: I've known people that have moved to other parts of the country, say moved from the Midwest where you and I live to Southern states where there was a little bit different accent. And after a few years, they tend to take on some of those yeah. speech characteristics. On the other hand, I've known people that have moved and really retain their past speech patterns or inflections or accents, if you will, for, for many years. So I don't know, but it's something that I noticed about, about her speech. The central conflict of this episode is that Klingons on the planet, well, and and it said Klingons and also former Federation officers, but we didn't really see any of them. But at at least they were making huge profits selling dilithium during the war, and they want to reignite the war to boost their profits again. The bad guys do this by building a fake Starfleet ship to attack an actual Klingon ship. And I have trouble believing that a fake Starfleet ship with random Starfleet parts kind of collected from here and there would be a major threat to a Klingon D7 battlecruiser. Was just putting in an appearance enough with no need for combat? If there was combat. Were they expecting to it to be a suicide mission for those on board? Would the D7 blowing up a fake ship in short order which would likely be the outcome of any combat they engage in, would that have been enough to restart the war? The whole plot by those bad guy capitalist Klingons really seems overly optimistic to me. And by the way, does starting a war for profit align with the Klingon priority of honor I don't know. So there there are some things yeah. there. I mean, bad guy capitalist is always a convenient bad guy in almost any TV series or movie you come across. It happens a lot. Things didn't quite connect for me in in that element of the story. By the way, Rodney, uh, Mitchell, the navigator, identifies the fake Starfleet ship after it takes off as Crossfield class. That's right. But that's the class of the USS Discovery. And those two ships right. look nothing alike, so nothing I don't know what Mitchell alike. is thinking. I didn't figure that one out. A few short takes here. I said it last season, but the domed forests on Starbase 1 in Jupiter orbit reminded me of the 1972 environmental-themed movie Silent Running, which was directed by the famous Douglas Trumbull and starred also the famous Bruce Stern. Speaking of the Starbase, right in the first scene, those little ships flying willy-nilly every which way. Did mm-hmm. you notice that? Yeah, I was wondering what the heck they were doing there. My wife asked, don't they have a flight plan? And I said, oh, they're probably just cadets, you know. Joy riding. Yeah, or at least learning how to fly proper pattern. The scene does confirm, though, that Starbase 1 is in Jupiter orbit, so whatever we saw in Earth orbit in the past, the big space station we saw there, is not the official Starbase 1. Now, they say in this episode that several months have passed since La'an left Enterprise, and I think primarily this passage of time maybe needed to account for Oriana being considerably older than we saw her last season. Of course, there was time between filming the two series and The child actor gets older, but I think that was the main reason they said several months have passed. Behind Pike's desk, we see a typical display of his memorabilia, including a tabletop statue of a horse and rider. Of course, he's a horseman himself. There's a model of Enterprise back there and various books and bottles. To one side, at the left, as we look at the screen, he has a full-size Western saddle. On a saddle stand there in his office, his ready room. And in the room where Spock talks to the rest of the crew about hijacking Enterprise, I don't know if that's the the other end of the same room or a different room, but there are also shelves there with statues of horses and cowboys that are presumably pikes. I mentioned Roger Corby earlier, we learned that Chapel is intending to go off to a space archaeology class that will last a couple of months, And I'm sort of anticipating that's going to be where she meets Roger Corby and at least briefly becomes engaged to him. The established continuity says she was his student someplace, somewhere, and that she joined Starfleet to look for him after he disappeared. So we're apparently kind of nudging that continuity a little bit here. We now know of two things that Spock did not do at Starfleet Academy. Of course, he famously never took the Kobayashi Maru test. And now we learn that he didn't take what is presumably a standard course on warp core breaches from Pelia. It's more evidence for my long term opinion that, like his sister, Spock did not attend Starfleet Academy and he got into Starfleet via a different route, like Michael did, the J.J. Abrams movies notwithstanding.
1: Right. Different timeline. Uh,
0: yeah, we had a humorous bit, and yeah, it was fun. It was humorous about Spock's catchphrase, but it was the second time in two successive Star Trek episodes that they've done essentially the same scene. The Picard finale had a similar scene about Seven's catchphrase, and we didn't find out what that was going to be. So using it here really kind of seems uh, repetitious overdone. Yeah, I agree. Rodney, when Laan is drinking with the Klingon guy, drinking the Klingon under the table kind of for a bet or something, were you thinking that she was channeling Marion Ravenwood from Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, I'm thinking it now
1: yeah. <laughs> that you mentioned it. <laughs> you
0: know, uh, very, very, very similar similar yeah. scene. I, I, I can't believe it wasn't inspired by Raiders. Again, in this episode, we learned that Starfleet folks know Morse code or in this case, apparently a modification called Morse 2. That was a past episode, I can't remember which series it was, that established that cadets do learn Morse code at the Academy, presumably as homework or some sort of exercise. And as an amateur radio operator, I always perk up when I hear some kind of reference to Morse code, particularly in Star Trek. Yes, people can probably survive unprotected in space for a minute or even two. I'm not sure that freezing would happen quite as soon as Mabenga said, but the immediate issue, if, if you or anyone is like exposed to no air pressure, is that the moisture would rapidly turn into vapor. And of course, humans are 60% moisture. There are some pretty graphic descriptions out there of what would happen. And there was one guy that, that was in a, a high altitude chamber that lost pressure, that experienced it. I'm not going to go into detail because it would be kind of gruesome. Thank you. Um, I would note the first ever time on a screen that we saw surviving unprotected somebody in space was 2001 A Space Odyssey, when mm-hmm. Dave Bowman has to cross a few feet of space without his helmet to get back into the spaceship Discovery after Hal goes wacko. <laughs> By the way, I don't think I have ever seen an accurate portrayal of CPR on television or at least on on fiction television. yeah, Spock performing CPR in chapel certainly had a lot of, well, shall we say artistic license? Yeah. Why does he have to be so rough? (sighs) The final scene in the episode is a map showing the location of this probable Gorn attack ship. Seestis appears on the map, and that's where Kirk and company encounter the Gorn a decade or so later in the original series. There's a place called Deep Space 2 on the map, which is presumably a space station. But still, it's a continuity issue that Kirk and even Spot clearly knew nothing about the Gorn in that original series episode arena. It was, it was a completely new species they had encountered.
1: Yeah. And this really bothers me, Michael, and maybe it shouldn't, but I really hope they make sense of this before the series is done.
0: (laughs) I saw an article that said that there was a a thought about using Gorn in Star Trek Enterprise other than in the Mirror Universe story in which a, a Gorn appeared, but they abandoned the idea to use the Gorn as a broader bad guy species because Arena was so clear that there'd never been an encounter between the two species between Starfleet and, and the Gorn. And finally, for this section of the podcast, I want to go down a brief rabbit hole. Oriana addresses Chapel and Mbenga saying, I'm so glad to see you guys. The only other time I remember use of the term you guys in Star Trek is in The Voyage Home when Jillian asks Kirk and Spock, Do you guys like Italian? Okay. For the record, you guys is an informal, colloquial, second person pronoun it's used in where rodney and i live in the upper midwest of the united states it's not used all over the us y'all is more or less an equivalent in southern states use uh has the same meaning in other areas like maybe chicago new york you guys in the areas where it's used is used when addressing more than one person and is not gender specific even though in some contexts guys may refer to males. So an example is, hey you guys, thanks for listening. Okay. So, Rodney, do you know what the plural possessive form of you guys is? Your guises? Yes. That is the plural possessive. It's not grammatical in any way, but it's what people say around here, believe me. Here's an example. Be sure to subscribe your guys' apps to the Star Trek Academy podcast.
1: We really appreciate your guys' listening to our podcast. Yeah. yeah. The <laughs>
0: plural possessive
1: form. Okay. So,
0: you know, it, it's fine and it's just informal speech, but so familiar to us around this part of the country, you guys. And I think in other places, it may be not as much. And certainly, if anyone's listening, where they have learned english as a second language or a foreign language you guys is kind of a kind of a strange term you may not be familiar with
1: yeah i hadn't thought about that that probably sounds a little weird to some folks but it sounded completely normal to me yeah 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 (laughs) well there's there's so much we could talk about and we've we have talked about a lot but we're going to go ahead and turn the page here i guess talk about meaning and so we're looking for messages that the writers and the producers might have uh tried to convey to us and we could take away from this episode so uh what are we taking away from this episode even if the producers didn't intend it
0: well rodney i think there is an ethical message in this episode and we've kind of uh hinted at it before spock violates orders because he perceives that they're wrong, and because of his loyalty to his shipmate, Lahan. And we've talked about the role of emotions there. But basically, violating orders in a chain of command organization is a dicey proposition. And Spock is very lucky that he gets off easy. Still, I think the message is about doing what's right versus doing what's easy. And if you will, breaking the rules when there is a greater purpose. But that can be problematic because the question is, whose judgment is it about what's right or wrong and what constitutes a greater
1: purpose? Yeah. And, you know, and I'm not sure if this is where you're going with this, Michael, but um, not any old justification will do here. (laughs) Just because somebody believes that they ought to do something by itself doesn't justify doing it. I mean, there are better reasons, there are worse reasons for, for breaking rules.
0: Yeah. And now I don't want to get into contemporary American politics, but it is pretty common in political areas and other areas to see people breaking the law or breaking other rules when they think that the rule is wrong or when they believe they have justification. And we often see this done in a way that causes harm to other people up to and including death. So I think part of the equation for breaking the rules for a greater purpose needs to be the authenticity of the judgment. Is it a valid judgment? Spock would say, is it logical? Is it evidence-based? Mm. Or is it just a visceral, emotional response to something? Mm-hmm. Maybe just getting angry about something that makes someone lose control. Or or sometimes it's just, oh, I won't get caught. Like when people drive 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, oh, they probably won't catch me. I can get away with it. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is not really that valid or authentic a judgment about uh, about what's right
1: yes spock you know he has his he may be motivated by emotion here but you know um and he says he's acting on a hunch but i i think it's more than that i mean so he has his trusted comrade is in trouble says that there's a threat to the federation that needs to be addressed all right and as embega said you know that could have been a trap You know, as April said, they were putting the peace between the Klingon Empire and the Federation in jeopardy by doing this. But, you know, Spock really did have a good reason for doing this, as Pellia noted. And I think you could
0: argue that a hunch is like subconscious processing of evidence that we're not necessarily consciously aware of.
1: Yes, I agree. There's this book I've been using in my uh, critical thinking class in which the author makes this distinction between careful deliberation and making decisions within your quote-unquote circle of competence and when you're talking about things you know well usually you can make these pretty quick decisions and act on hunches you know and it's only when we're you know outside of our circle of competence that we need to really carefully deliberate Mm -hmm. so uh i like that I also like how Spock was careful not to trample his fellow officer's autonomy, right? We've talked about autonomy before in this podcast. He said, I will not ask you to do something you believe is wrong. If you wish to leave or report this plan, I will not stand in your way. So I thought that was great. Mm -hmm. All of them freely went on that mission. They were free to do it. That's not something they signed up for. You know, when you sign up, when you join Starfleet, you do not agree to violate orders. So he had to get them to freely choose it, and he did.
0: And it's it's that theme, the long-term theme that we've talked about several times of the found family. They've worked their way through the first season. Some of them were strangers when they started, but now they have that family feel among them. And so they are likely to support each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fundamental conflict in this episode is evil capitalists, basically. The revenue from del-lithium sales is down now that the war is over. War is good for business, they conclude. Um, Evil capitalists, or at least evil profit motive, is often the cause of conflict in fiction, not just in Star Trek. But almost every time you turn around, there's a movie or something where the bad guy is motivated by, by money and profit. It's interesting that in this episode, this contrasts this capitalistic profit motivation with the experiences of Mbenga and Chapel. Mbenga, at least, is borderline PTSD. And, yeah. and the writers use that to highlight the human toll of war. So I think that was a nice balance. The bad guys profit. Good guys show the suffering that war can cause and that that profit motive can cause.
1: Yeah, and it's it's touched as we were saying before. Well, you you said you know anyone who you know was not on the Enterprise during season two of Discovery was touched by that war in one way or another, and so there's this lingering legacy of it. And if you're looking for examples of movies about evil capitalists, I'm thinking about the Alien film franchise. Oh yeah, and also this disturbing movie, Adam McKay's. 2021 film don't look up that really messed with my head i don't know if you caught that no michael (laughs) but there there's loads of them out there and i'm not disagreeing with you you know capitalism is definitely one of the main topics here i think the episode is mainly about spock again and again people are surprised in this episode when spock doesn't act like a typical vulcan right the klingons toast him as the vulcan who acts nothing like a vulcan Pelia calls him a sweet unvulcan Vulcan, you remember that? Mm-hmm. And Chapel says that Vulcans can surprise you. So I don't know what all this adds up to, but it, it runs throughout the entire episode. And so it's clearly important.
0: <laughs> you know, Spock is in a long-term process of finding his way. In that season two of Discovery, he was really in tough psychological shape and made some progress there. But this is a process for him that will not really be resolved until a dozen years after this season of Strange New Worlds. He'll be working on it all the way through the original series, and after which he goes through colon R, remember, and then drops mm-hmm. out, and then encounters V'ger. And remember that scene after he comes back where he's really had a profound discovery about himself. And after that, I think he's on a much more even keel.
1: Yeah, there's that scene in which he's talking with Kirk and sickbay, And I don't remember if that's in the theatrical version or the director's cut. But it's very clear that he has this big epiphany about how important, you know, connection is. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah.
0: This episode, I didn't see any overt messages about diversity and inclusion as such. However, did you notice that Oriana appears to have two moms.
1: Yeah, I did notice that. One actually. mom
0: One mom yeah. is in the bed, is hospitalized. And there's a second woman there who is clearly in the role of family members. And Oriana mentions her parents and points at the two of them. And it's not exactly philosophy or ethics, well, maybe sort of. But again, in the broken circle, we hear a Vulcan say, Vulcans cannot lie. And I would submit to you that that is a lie. Spock himself, speaking of Season 2 of Discovery, Spock himself lied about what happened to Discovery and what happened to his sister in Discovery Season Mm 2. Vulcans certainly can lie if there is a logical reason to lie. Thus, Spock saying Vulcans cannot lie is a lie. It's one that he repeats many times over the years, but when it's logical to do so, when it helps him accomplish a worthy purpose remember the scene with savik and uh how, how how much time repairs would take in the wrath of khan he right. essentially lies exaggerates in order to mislead khan and to serve the worthy purpose of keeping the enterprise safe
1: time for uh, final thoughts then maybe on the broken circle uh, did we like the episode i did uh what's your value judgment what's coming next do you think well, this was a strong
0: episode. I said earlier. it nicely balances action and character development and and adds some new backstory to learn about and and also humor and uh, introduces new new characters and new mysteries and things. It was interesting that on the Ready Room this week, Ethan Peck said that these first episodes of season two of Strange New Worlds were shot before season one had premiered. really. And you know, it takes a year or so of post-production after photography to get all the special effects and the music and the sound ready. And so as they were shooting this episode, which I think we agree was well done, they had yeah. no idea what the whole fan reaction was going to be to strange new Worlds at this point of the production of season two. Hmm. Now, Rodney, we like to reflect on the meaning of each episode title which in this case was the broken circle now at face value Lon makes a reference to one of her contacts on the planet referring to her organization as the broken circle so maybe that's the name that the Klingon and X federation people use for their conspiracy but I think that the title more so refers to all our heroes Pike is yeah. off looking for help for Una that's kind of a broken situation Lahan has been away for months, it appears, and so she's disconnected. Hemmer is dead, and Uhura in particular is grieving for him because they forged a fairly close friendship. And Benga, we learn, is more broken than we realized as a result of his war experiences, and we're kind of flashing back to them as a result of events in this episode. So the Enterprise crew circle is kind of broken at the beginning of this season. Most of them are not quite right.
1: I agree completely. Um, and just to be clear, they're they're broken in a number of ways. First of all, uh, they're hurting or they're ailing, but also in the sense that the circle is incomplete. And just to add to the names uh, or the list of names of people who are or might soon will be absent, Chapel is thinking about studying archaeological medicine for a few months. Um, and that's just in addition to the absence, as you already mentioned.
0: Yeah, so so there are a lot of disconnects going on. The relationships are not what they should be. Even before I saw this episode, when I first heard that title, I assumed it was a reference. The circle in the reference was a reference to the circle of crew and cast of, of the series. Mm-hmm. Rodney, my final, final thought here is that, uh, you know, Discovery launched the modern era of New Star Trek and and that series, which is ending after one more season, really deserves respect for that. But I think that The Broken Circle, this episode, really makes clear that Strange New Worlds has become the flagship Star Trek series of the 2020s. I hope that Star Trek, as an entire franchise, benefits from lessons that have been learned in the production of Strange New Worlds, including, among other things, the merits of episodic Star Trek.
1: I I agree. And I don't necessarily have a problem with um, serialized Television storytelling, and and I don't like to pick on Discovery. I think people do that too much. People are mostly unfair to Discovery. This episodic approach, you know, it's working. It's working very well. <laughs> Another th- issue I wanted to mention is Star Trek isn't about war, is it, Michael? It, well, shouldn't, it shouldn't be, be yeah, about. I agree. War. I agree. And so I'm I'm a little worried here. I think too many of the series have been about war at some point. Yeah, DS9, Enterprise, Discovery, of course. And I just hope that Strange New Worlds does not become dominated by another, you know, season-long story arc about war with the Gorn. You you can have conflict and action and drama and intrigue and suspense and all that without war.
0: I agree. You know, um, (laughs) know, war, I think, is easy for writers, almost an archetypal situation that it's easy Mm -hmm. to, to draw on for a story. Way back when, I wasn't all that thrilled when Deep Space Nine went into its war story arc. But I think they did a fine job with it. They addressed all kinds of issues related to war. And and fundamentally, they did a fine job with it. And in Star Trek, I think it should be been there, done that. I think we should find other things. As as you said, there there are ways to have conflict and action and drama and not have to just have evil bad guy aliens and and shoot them up and things that happens a lot in video games and i'm not a big video game player but i know lots of uh, video games have an emphasis on shooting shooting other ships and all that kind of thing so Mm -hmm. i would like to see some more thoughtful nuanced um storylines that don't just have to have evil bad guy humans or evil bad guy aliens or something like that
1: and as an example as unhappy as i was with season four of discovery that's what we got. <laughs> you know? I mean, with what they did there, that was very creative, I thought., um, you know, that was a uh, an existential threat that was not typical. You didn't have this these sort of evil <laughs> beings, you know, bent on destruction. I, I thought they did that that was very creative what they did uh, with that season. Anyway, uh, I suppose with that, I think our work is done here Uh, we'd like to thank you for joining us for our podcast now next week's episode is ad astra per aspera now that's latin for to the stars through hardships you can stay in touch with us on our social media feeds on mastodon twitter and facebook at trek underscore academy and also at tumblr at trek academy without the underscore you can Google Star Trek Academy podcast and look for our red Vulcan hand salute logo to find our podcast. And don't forget that you can subscribe via your podcast app to automatically get the new podcast downloads. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Star Trek Academy podcast.